edition of our show, Herstory, on the rock with Katie and Allie. So normally on a Thursday night, we would just be hanging out, just the two of us, with some cocktails, talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to women who are writing about history. Today, we have a very special guest here with us, Kimberly Hess. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Kimberly is a writer whose work has appeared on the website of the National Women's History Museum (laughs) and she's here to talk to us today about her newest book A Lesser Mortal The Unexpected Life of Sarah B. Cochran. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I was in a corporate job for almost 20 years. Um, I'd studied economics and industrial relations Um, in college and got an MBA afterward. And while I was working, was very involved with a lot of organizations that had to do with women's advancement, women's education, um, or women in business. So um, a couple of years ago, I left the workforce to be at home with my daughter and started to write a little bit about Sarah B. Cochran. I was taking my husband out to Western Pennsylvania to show the area to him And he Googled Sarah Cochran's name and was amazed that he couldn't find information online about her. So he encouraged me to write a Wikipedia article about her, which I did. And then I did some guest blog posts about her and a StoryCorps recording and a presentation for a historical society and got to the point where it just made sense to go further and go into writing a book about her. Perfect. Well, we can't wait to get into this book about this incredible woman. Um, But first, Allie has made a cocktail for your book. So Allie, what are we drinking today? So I wanted the cocktail to be as dark as possible, (laughs) as if it's cold. Very, very dark. So I made a red sangria, obviously called the Lesser Mortal. And it is red wine and triple sec and gold slogger and then it be because of the philanthropy but then mm. in it is like <laughs> oranges and black raspberries and red raspberries so cheers cheers <laughs> and cheers to your book thank you that sounds delicious mm. yeah we'll send you the recipe and then it can be your official book cocktail yes okay <laughs> and because you can make it in a batch form, <laughs> which we always <laughs> love for, for parties or book signings. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Great. So before we dive into the book, can you tell us a little bit about what life was like for women in the United States during Sarah's time? Like what could they and could they not do at that moment in history legally because that's Sarah's going to kind of break the mold a little right she lived at a really interesting time from 1857 to 1936 so her life overlapped with a lot of the women's suffrage movement Um, the Seneca Falls Convention was about nine years before she was born Um, the 19th Amendment was in 1920 and of course she was a suffragist involved with that but Um, You know, sometimes people don't realize that there were a series of married women's property acts that were happening throughout the 19th century. So Sarah and women of her generation were ending up with more rights once they were married than the women before them. Um, So that was one thing to keep in mind about her particular time in history. But for someone 
like her, who was born in Western Pennsylvania in the 1850s, she was probably expecting that her role would be as a wife and mother. She couldn't aspire to have a career and follow her dreams and look for fulfillment or wealth creation on her own. Everything really came down to the economic necessity of being married. Um, you know, and even in the 1890s in Pennsylvania, women were legally prohibited from working in or around coal mines. Mm-hmm. So the fact that she ended up owning coal and coke mines um, is kind of ironic, given what the laws were at the time. Yeah, well, I think it's kind of interesting because we talk often about, you know, famous performers like, you know, like Josephine Baker, people like that who were performing in these venues that they weren't allowed to buy tickets at. So it kind of reminds me of, of that, someone who can own this business somehow, but wouldn't even be able to work in it. So right. how did she come to own this business? So she was actually the maid for a man named Jim Cochran, who was the pioneer of the Connellsville Coke industry, which created this enormous wealth in the southern area of Pennsylvania. Ultimately, Frick is the name associated with that industry later, but it was Jim Cochran who pioneered it. When she was the maid, she and Jim's son, Philip, fell in love, and they got married, and Philip was being groomed to take over the family business from his father. So um, when Jim died in the 1890s, Philip did take over the business, but then Philip died rather early in life in 1899, and he left everything to Sarah. She was supposed to take care of a certain portion of it for their son, who would turn 21 in 1901. And he was off at the University of Pennsylvania studying at Warden so that he could return and take over the business as he got older. But he got pneumonia and passed away six months before he turned 21. So all of a sudden, in uh, spring of 1901, Sarah had this coal and coke empire basically left in her hands. Um, She might have been assuming that she was going to take a step back from it and let her son be more involved, but now it was hers indefinitely. And it was supposed to have spread from Western Pennsylvania to West Virginia, Virginia, and Tennessee. And it's so incredible that this happened because like you said, when you Google her name, it's your book, your Wikipedia article, and like, not much else. So why is she left out of the historical narrative of the United States? Well, for one thing, she didn't self-promote very much. So she wasn't putting herself in places where people could find her. She stayed in the area where her family was, compared to someone like Henry Clay Frick, who had a house in Pittsburgh and in New York City and was easy to find. Um, You know, she was also a woman in an industry where it was male-dominated at a time when no one would expect to find a woman in this industry. So I don't think people go looking for that when they're doing research about this industry. And even when you do try to look for her, you kind of have to know she's there because some of the records that are still around have to do with Frick's companies and Frick's employees, and they don't focus on the smaller competitors And in a lot of cases, the records for those competitors aren't in existence anymore. So it's very hard to find her if you don't know that she's there. And what made her stand out as a business owner? Like, did she do things differently than the other, like, male business owners at the time? Was there something that really made her unique in your mind? 
Well, it's hard to know exactly what she was doing on the business side of her activities and what agency she had, because most of the records that you can find about the business side of her activity are from historic newspapers and state mining reports. Um, she was very successful. The companies grew 300% under her leadership. But she also had a lot of people in positions in the companies that would have been making decisions with her. And we don't know how much was up to those individuals and up to Sarah. I think what really set her apart was that she stayed local and she became a philanthropist who supported a number of organizations that mattered and causes that mattered to her. So going back to your previous question about why she's not so well known, she was supporting organizations that were local. So she's very well known locally, but not past that. And I, I'm glad you're talking about that because I was thinking about the region of like Pennsylvania and Ohio and West Virginia. And it's just such an odd region because it's north of Washington, D.C. and south of New York. And it's like, you know, on this side of the Mississippi, but it's not quite on the East Coast. And it's what did she mean to that region? Because that's a very blue collar region. Yeah, I mean, she had an impact on the built environment there. She built a men's dormitory at Allegheny College and a women's dormitory at Otterbein University in Ohio. Um, she bought a fraternity house for the West Virginia Alpha, Cap Alpha chapter of Phi Kappa Psi. Um, she built a high Gothic revival church that's on the National Register of Historic Places and a mansion in the Tudor style that's on the National Register of Historic Places. So she had this effect on the built environment, but she was also involved in educating people from that area and sending them to college if she saw promise so that she would uh, send women to college to be teachers and improve the school systems in the area where she lived. Um, you know, she got involved in the suffrage movement and was pushing women's suffrage forward at a time when Pennsylvania was uh, having a referendum on the subject. So you know, she had this very large impact, but it's kind of spread out. And some of the causes that she took up, like suffrage, aren't necessarily causes that we keep going back to and looking for artifacts about anymore. Yeah. She kind of reminds me a lot of Dolly Parton, how yes. Dolly Parton is this incredible businesswoman that I don't think people give her enough credit for. And we see her constantly putting money and effort back into her community. And I feel like that's what Sarah Cochran did. And I think it's incredible. And so do we know a lot about her personal life? Because I mean, it sounds like her family was gone by this point. And that's why she's in this position. So do we know anything about her personal life in her later years? Well, let's see. She never remarried. She only had one child. Um, she was very involved with this fraternity in West Virginia. She was very involved with her church. She traveled in Europe with her sister and brother-in-law. And occasionally newspapers locally would record um, information about parties that she would have for the 4th of July or, or something else, or a wedding that might be hosted at Linden Hall, and she would have a couple of hundred people over for that. So you know, she still seemed to have a support system of siblings and nieces and nephews, um, and 
She even had to go to New York because her nephew died on the Titanic coming home from his honeymoon. So she was one of the people from that region who made the trip out to New York City to meet the Carpathia. She's a Titanic um, lover. I do. I love yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also just really excited about the idea of like maybe her and like Margaret Ma- Brown, Bra- Maggie Brown meeting. They yeah. had like a whole, they had a whole conversation, of course. <laughs> Write a whole book about it. It's funny because the nephew's wife survived and she was in a lifeboat. And according to one newspaper article, Mrs. Astor was in that lifeboat with her. And then in another Uh article, it was Mrs. And Molly Brown. Now, I don't know if this is one of those lifeboats that gets bigger and bigger and bigger (laughs) as the story's told. This is, you know, actually just the reporting in one paper versus another, but that's an interesting connection. I feel, <laughs> yeah. hey, are you dying? Are yes. you dying? <laughs> <laughs> um, so as you were writing the book, you said, you know, you were talking to your husband about it and you're Googling her or he's Googling her and you can't quite find her. How did your relationship with her change from the beginning to the end? Because usually it's a long process. You spent more time with this woman than most people are going to spend with their spouses or their partners. So how did that relationship change? I think for the first time I thought about the fact that she was in her 40s when her life changed so much because I'm in my 40s. And it's odd because it it just speaks to the type of lives that women can have today. I mean, I was able to go to college and graduate school and travel and have a career. And then I got married at 40 and had a child and worked on this. Whereas she didn't have those opportunities and she had marriage and children early and then in her 40s started this career. So I started thinking much more deeply about that as I worked on the book. Um, I thought about what she lost in losing her son too, because this was really a family business that was going from the regional elite to potentially the national elite with him. And for the first time, I really thought a lot about him and and the fact that, you know, I wonder where he would have gone if he would have survived. Would he have gotten married? Would he have married someone who wasn't from Western Pennsylvania or had connections in other industries? There were just a lot of questions that came up that I wish I could sit down and ask Sarah herself. Yeah, absolutely. And I just, I feel like she lived such an incredible life. And what do you think people can kind of gain from her legacy? Like, what do you want people to walk away with when they read this book? Well, there's a few things. I mean, she's someone who was the first and only in a particular profession. Um, You know, she, she was dealing with grief and finding a way forward after her husband and son died, and she did that through philanthropy. I think a lot of people will always deal with the issue of how do I move forward out of a negative situation? Um, How do I deal with being the first or only to do something? How do I do something that I've never even imagined before, much less someone else? So I think there are lessons in her life that are helpful to people, but I also think that, you know, This story is interesting because I wrote it without a PhD in history. I don't have special connections to get information about her. So this is indicative of what anybody can write and anybody can research because the information is out there. It's a matter of 
really having the time to put it together and do something with it. So I'm sure there are other people who know of family members or community members whose stories need to be told. Yeah. And how did that research process go? Where did you have to travel anywhere? Did you have to get specific like permissions to archives or um, just going through libraries in, you know, Pennsylvania? Well, I got specific permissions to use images in the books from any of the organizations that provided those. Um, But basically, from the beginning, I decided I was defining what I was and wasn't going to do. I didn't want this to be a 600-page biography with every detail about her life. Um, Because honestly, I mean, coming from a business background, you tend to write very briefly. So the thought of even writing 200 pages about one subject was kind of overwhelming. Um, I didn't want to write a genealogy. I didn't want to write about the coal and coke industry or Frick and Carnegie because there are so many books about all of that already. So I wanted to really narrow the scope to her And I thought of different questions and issues that just mattered to me from my background and my experience hearing about her. And I started out contacting archives and organizations that had to do with her particular life and her philanthropy. Um, I did visit Western Pennsylvania and Ohio in the course of another trip that we were making out there. And I visited the um, Colon Coke Heritage Center at Penn State which was wonderful for providing information and and copies of deeds that her name was on. Um, I got to see the campus of Allegheny College. I didn't really do any research there, but I did work with their archivist for information. Um, I mean, I've been through wills and deeds, um, historic newspapers, um, basically mining reports for the state of Pennsylvania from about 1870 to 1930. I got Anna Howard Shaw's diary from the Schlesinger Library online. It's just amazing how much can be accessed online right now. So in some cases, you don't have to travel to get the information. Oh, that's great. And can I ask you a question? So I don't know if this is dumb. What is a Coke mine? Can Um, you explain that to me? Good (laughs) question. I know what a coal mine is, but I don't know what a Coke mine is. I had to Google it. Just so you know, I did Google it. It's a a Coke oven, and it's outside of the coal mines. So if you own the coal mines in a bituminous region, so soft coal in western Pennsylvania, you would do this. You would own the coal mine, and then when you bring the coal up out of the mine, you put it into this brick oven that's about like eight feet by 12 feet, so about the size of somebody's dining room or so. And you fill that with coal, and you heat it for maybe two to three days, And at the end of that time, you have a byproduct of coal called coke. And it's almost pure carbon. And then you send that off to be used in the steelmaking process. So you're able to sell coke to one market, you sell your coal to another market, and then you keep a certain amount of coal as power for your mining um, operations on site. Okay, great. I was just like... I. I've never heard of that before. And of course I'm thinking of like Coca-Cola. And I was like, is it connected? I don't know. <laughs> well, it's funny because there's like, obviously the two types of Coke that are referred to are mm-hmm. the soda and the, you yeah, know, a the- line of Coke. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I need to Google. This. Yeah. 
<laughs> so are these things that you got to learn like when you were at the mines themselves? Oh, I didn't visit any mines. I mean, this was just something I had learned as far as the specifics of the Coke ovens from reading other books on the Coke industry and the coal industry and the mining reports. Um, you know, my parents were from southwestern Pennsylvania, so they knew something about Coke ovens. My mom would tell me when I was growing up, by the time she was growing up, they weren't being used as much. So sometimes homeless people would be living in some of these because they were just abandoned um, where the mines had been. Mm. And there are stories my dad will tell about how there were so many Coke ovens burning at certain times that you could read a newspaper at night outside because there was enough light from all of these ovens burning on such a large scale. Wow. But well, it's I, something you just don't hear about in other parts of the country. Yeah. And I mean, just Pennsylvania's steel industry is so big. Mm-hmm. Like it, it doesn't surprise me that that's such a big part of their story. Yeah. So, okay. Um, did you juggle, how was it? So with an MBA, was it hard to juggle like the the history of this woman with her business ventures? Because that's a lot of like moving back and forth between two fields. Like you were writing a history, like you said, not like a moment for moment timeline, but you're writing a history that you have this incredible business background. So how did you juggle that information? So when I had an when I studied economics in college, I specialized in industrial organization, which is all industry analysis. Mm-hmm. So that really provided the framework because um, I've had to use that in a corporate career, um, and I just brought it back when I was going through information about the coal and coke industries. So that's what helped with analyzing that and communicating that in the book. And then as far as her personal history. I did a lot of genealogical research starting in the 80s on my own family. Um, So that was something that I was always interested in. And I think having that experience as a hobby helped me to tell her personal story a little bit differently. And do you have a favorite part of the book that you wrote and one that you just really wanted to get through your least favorite part? (laughs) Well, the hardest part to write was actually about the business because there's just not a lot of information. And if you're trying to find out how hands-on she was in her business or how other people perceived her or what agency she had, that's very hard to really pin down. And one thing I learned in the process was that, you know, these records that were kept aren't very transparent based on the way we would understand business transparency today. So you can find out through historic newspapers that she owned a particular mine, but to read the mining reports, you can get statistics on it. You don't have any idea who the owner was. You get information about the mining managers instead. So it's all very much, you know, a scenario where you're just trying to connect the dots to figure these things out. So that was the part that I didn't like. And the part that I really liked was... um, more to do with her educational philanthropy because she put my great-grandmother through college. So it was interesting to learn more about that in the process. And then um, I learned more about the Sistine Madonna copy that she bought in Europe for her church in Western Pennsylvania. 
that was something that always interested me because when I would go to family weddings or Christmas Eve services at this particular church, I would always look at this painting and wonder, why did you bring that particular painting back in the early 1900s? And I found out that um, Jane Stanford actually had this copy made and had another copy of the painting made to use out at Stanford University because she knew students couldn't travel to Europe in the 1890s to see these great masterpieces. So she was having them copied and brought back and Sarah happened to buy the other copy. Both women were suffragists. Both women lost their sons at early ages. Both women weren't always taken seriously by their business peers. I mean, it's just a very bizarre little um, twist that was uncovered in the midst of that. Wow. It's also great because I feel like sometimes with like great works of art like that, like you have to travel to Europe, you have to go there. And I love that she was like, well, these people deserve to see fine art. Like (laughs) they're just like, they're good enough to see it. They might not have enough money to go to Europe. So like, I'm going to bring it to them. And I, I feel like it all goes back to her just investing and believing in her community. And I love that. Yeah. Yeah, no matter what you did for a living, no matter what your background was, this was there for you. And one of the local papers even made the snarky comment about how Mrs. Cochran succeeded where Mr. Carnegie failed in buying this painting because apparently Carnegie tried to buy it from the artist. And for whatever reason, the artist refused to sell it. By the time Sarah got to Dresden, the artist was dead. The estate was being liquidated and she was able to buy it. And local newspaper made this comment that almost sounds like social media trolling today. (laughs) Funny to see. Yeah. Well, I think people are going to be really excited to learn about the life of Sarah. Can you tell us where people can find this book, where they can find you, how they can get in, like, they can get this book in their hands for the summer? So it's available as a paperback or ebook on Amazon, and it's available as a paperback just about anywhere else that sells books. Um, It may just have to be ordered if it's a small bookstore with the author's name and title. Um, And then I use my Amazon author page and Goodreads and LinkedIn. Um, I'm on Instagram at Smithy, Z-U-H-A-U-S-E. I'm not on a lot of social media, so... That's about the extent of it for me. (laughs) Perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us about Sarah. What a great life to explore that I would never have known about her. So (laughs) So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye